Hey Pickleballers, and welcome to another episode of the Pickle Bros Podcast. As always, thank you for your likes, comments, subscriptions, and use code PICKLEBROS at checkout with Carbon for 10% off. But guys, I gotta tell you something. I uh, may be a little infidelitous with Carbon here. Uh, Gearbox just came out with a new paddle, and it's supposed to be the absolute hardest-hitting paddle that's legal. It matches EVA foam. So... Pickle Bros, I will be bringing a new weapon to you here in the coming days. So be excited for that. Tim, I know you and Gearbox go way back. So you'll probably want to borrow that thing off of me. And in true fall fashion, I am under the weather. So my uh, my speech may be a little more difficult, but I'm going to have the bros carry the show today. Today's episode is The Shake and Bake something that we love to discuss here some of us love to use um and it's gonna be an awesome awesome conversation but first this weekend was a very special event for me and i'm gonna let jesse explain it since he was the ultimate mastermind behind it all so um ian has come out with a book he's a published author and uh here i'll show a screen cap uh, at the Edge of Paradise, available on Amazon.com and Barnes and & Noble. And uh, Ian has been talking about this book for the last year and a half since I met him. And he kept talking about it, and I was sort of skeptical that it would ever come to fruition. And then all of a sudden, there, there it was. He said he, it was done. And... Um, yeah, I ordered a copy and it, it physically showed up and I could touch it with my actual hands, which was pretty cool. So um, we decided to throw him a surprise book party. And uh, we enlisted his twin brother to, to help us with this. So we rented out a pickleball facility here in the Springs called Springs Pickleball. Uh, it's an eight-court facility. And we told... The brother Zane, you know, can you get Ian there at 6:15 p.m. on on Saturday, October 14th? And he said, "Sure, no problem." He thought it was a great idea. And we didn't like tell him. We we delegated, okay, like a good manager does. We didn't tell him like how to come up with an excuse to get Ian there. We were just like, "Your job is to get him there. Do it however you want." So, uh, Zane, Ian's brother came up with this convoluted story, cockamamie story, about a, he, he works for a car dealership. He works for the Toyota here in, in Colorado Springs. So he told Ian that there was an all-city car dealership charitable fundraiser tournament at this facility. And, like, the more we thought about this, the more we thought, this is a disaster. Like, n nobody's going to believe, nobody's going to be dumb enough to believe this story. Like, first of all, how likely is it that if a car dealership were to have a charitable fundraising tournament, that they would choose pickleball. Like, <laughs> there's like bowling, there's rock climbing, there's golf. Golf. There's, yeah, there's like a million things that they could they could pick. How likely is it that they would pick the one sport that Ian is obsessed with? <laughs> and secondly, this tournament was starting at 6:30 p.m. and like, that doesn't make sense. I mean, we only had the, the facility closes at 9. 
you know, what is it like, like one game to 11 single elimination, you know, it just didn't make any sense. And we thought there's no way he's going to believe this. And, and, um, well, he, he did, he fell for it. And it, it was just a, a really special, uh, event. We actually have, yeah, go ahead and go ahead and play that. This is a... I have not seen this. <laughs> He's looking behind him like, is this for me? He doesn't realize yeah. that it's for him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Look at So yeah, there were there were some there were some tears and and it was it was uh, a really special thing. So Ian had a chance to talk about his book. We hope everybody listening will will buy a copy and and leave a nice comment at Amazon. Um, Please review he, it. That's very helpful. Right, and he signed books and he sold books. There was about maybe thirty five people there, and then uh, we all played pickleball, and it was just a really special, wonderful evening. Awesome. Stop! I know that you had some opinions on my fault. <laughs> oh my gosh! Like, okay, Jesse did a great job laying it out, but I was—we were texting and kind of coordinating behind the scenes. I'm like, if Ian does not realize what's going on, like the dude's an idiot. Like, we like, like, like think about this. So all the things Jesse just said, not to mention the time, you know, what what the unnamed charity. No, no questions were asked about that. The dude Ian calls in to Springs Pickleball and is like, hey, like. Tell me more. There's no there's no social media promotion about it. There's nothing online. He's like calling and, and I, I don't know if this interaction was they were they were in on it or just again, Ian just was oblivious because they said, Oh, it just says blocked out for a party and so Ian's like, Oh all dealership thing, party, sure. Like that 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 checks out <laughs> to me. Uh, and so he didn't he didn't think about it. And then think, think okay, let's start thinking through some more of these details. Like, okay, all these dealerships are allowed to come. But what they're allowed to bring ringers like your your twin brothers allowed to bring a, a pickleball superstar to, to participate to take down this charity tournament. I don't think that's how it works, but OK. Um, and then all the dealerships in the town were in on this. Like this isn't just a specific Toyota thing. This is exclusive to all the other or all the other um, uh, car dealers are invited to this thing. So I was telling the guys, I was like, dude. There's no way. Like, he's just playing dumb. We haven't heard a word from him leading up to the thing. And so Jesse was laying out these elaborate, like, oh, we're in Denver plans. Tim Tim had uh, had him off, off course by saying he was doing something Saturday night. Um, and we had our, our buddies do the same thing. So he was really thrown for a loop. But, Ian, yeah, you bet I had some freaking thoughts about that. And I, was, I couldn't go because I was sick last week. But um, I, I was so shocked to hear that it, it, uh, you, you didn't catch on. Oh, not to mention all the cars in the parking lot. Don't you recognize the, 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 the 16 to 20 people you play with every day? Like, I'm a simple anyways, man, dude. I'm a I simple don't know. man. I, I, okay, so all that aside. He's focused on the tournament, all right? Yeah, I mean, he was, he was there to win. Thank yeah. you, Tim. <laughs> but I, I will say, seeing the pictures, hearing the stories, um, watching the video, I heard your speech, and it was—it really was 
touching like and you deserve it you deserve all the love in the world man like congratulations it, it was i make fun of you but um but you're you're a special dude we're lucky to have you on the pickle bros and um um i hope i hope that night represented that celebration of you well so so thanks for being you dude awesome yeah second best day of my life for sure after my wedding um it was awesome so the next party you guys throw for me is gonna have to beat that so uh so <laughs> standards have been raised right we have to do what's your beef tim i want to start off with you we haven't heard much from you this morning okay have you guys seen the show what we do in the shadows no have you guys seen this it's a mockumentary about a a family of vampires (laughs) and uh they all look like sort of the classic dracula type vampire except for one dude his name is colin and this guy looks like an extra in the office or something in the show the office he's just kind of bald he's unimpressive he wears glasses he, you know, he wears a polo shirt and he he is what is uh called an energy vampire so he comes into the room and he sucks the energy out of the room that's his bit <laughs> and and what's funny about this is there are pickleball players like this and it was about a month ago Stolp was still um Uh, recovering from his surgery so he was out of the picture for a little bit and i i got invited to some high level play and it was it was high level but i just noticed man there was no fun in the air at all and and that's odd because i usually don't complain about those kind of things like i want i want it you know let's keep this serious you know this is a big deal Mm -hmm. this is competitive let's keep the laughter to an absolute minimum you know, that kind of stuff. And yet when this was over with, I was like, that was so boring and lame and just no characters out there. And it made me really miss Stolp. <laughs> like, like we need to get Stolp back <laughs> in a hurry. And and it's because we had a bunch of energy vampires out there and I was one of them. I mean, I'll, I'll cop to it. I was boring too. And so it just kind of struck me. It's like... It, it is kind of important to get some characters out there and to get some life on that court and to get some guys that actually want to have fun on the pickleball court because it does make a difference. And it can be high level with people like that. But, uh, yeah, don't play with a bunch of energy vampires this mm. Halloween. Oh, well, great time for that, that, that very seasonal. Thank you. <laughs> I remember you bringing that up when it happened and you were like, I'm never the catalyst for fun. But I can participate in the fun. And you're like, so if, if I don't have a stolt there, then it's just going to be boring. He's like, you're like, I can't be the guy. So Yeah, exactly. That did amuse me. Stolt, what's your yeah. beef, my guy? Well, you know, I can't I can't not respond to some of these things. You know who my energy, uh, the opposite of that, my favorite player is in the Springs? Mike Lee. That guy oh, is, 100%. I mean, when we talk about <laughs> who brings the fun and is competitive and good, Nobody comes at me like that guy. He calls me, I think, big boy. He's like, come on, big boy. And he'll speed it up to me. He'll speed it up on the bounce. He'll do stupid stuff like what I do to me. And I'm like, what are you doing, dude? All right, let's go. You like go. that? You want another yeah. one? Hit this again. <laughs> yeah, right? Oh, well, that's all you got? And then he'll, he'll beat him or something. And he'll be like, yeah, you were in the kitchen. Like, 
<laughs> so, shout out to Mike Lee. He is the ultimate fun, fun player to play with. And uh, thanks, Tim, for those kind words. Because, yeah, pickleball is should bring you joy. Um, and when you're out there, you should actually have fun. So take that as a reminder to everyone out there who, who may not have as much fun to have a little bit of fun out there. It's a, it's a game. Um, that's why we do all this. All right. My beef. So this is let's see. How do I have to preface this? A um, little bit of selfishness because of my schedule so i play at 5 a.m four or five times a week whenever i can um and i have a tight timeline because of my kids school schedule and i have to be at different places at different times in the morning so when i when we say five o'clock uh play time to me you know what that means five o'clock play time that doesn't mean show up at 505 warm up for 15 minutes and your first 002 is set at 5:20 a.m. I uh um so so I constantly I'm warming up before the thing, I'm stretched ready to go so the second I hit my foot hits in between the lines, it's 002 go time. I know not everyone operates like that and not everyone has a schedule that is that is condensed to where I have to leave by 645 every morning, but I want to play. And so there's been a couple of sessions where dudes are rolling in at like 507 and it's still warming up and it's like wiping the, the sleepy sand from their eyes. It's like, no, 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 no. Let's roll at 5 a.m. So whenever playtime is discussed, determined, decided on when whenever that time is you show up ready to play and if you're not there ready to play that's my beef okay so just to clarify you're saying zero warm-up at 5 a.m like you have to you can warm up on your own you know in the on the basketball courts but the second you hit the pickleball court that's it no dinking no well you can you can like announce it and say hey can we get a couple dinks in and like you get three minutes max with me like three minutes okay yeah five oh three just, 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 generous, generous, yeah, just as long as there's there's some sort of agreement like, hey, I'm here before 5 a.m. ready to roll, but let me get a few ground strokes in. Let me do a couple serves. Let me do a couple things. I'm cool with that if you announce it, but with the with the intent to move fast to get to the games. Like that's that's what I, I don't like this lollygagging around. Let's get let's get going. See, but your representation of your beef was disingenuous because often you are. Um, shaming us and belittling us when we're too slow. You're like, come on, guys, let's go. Let's play. It's already 504. Uh, no. Yeah, that, that is a very kind way of putting it. When we have 12 people out there and they're just dinking around and it's 5-0, whatever, I'm like, let's get this effing thing going. Like, start yeah. it up. Like, start your engines. It's go time. So, yeah, I'm that guy. I love it. Jesse, what's your beef? Okay. My beef is not with people who just play pickleball for fun and aren't particularly concerned about getting better. My beef is not with them. I get it. There's people like that. They just want to have fun. They don't drill. That's fine. I have no problem with that. But there are people like us who are absolutely obsessed with getting better, right? And <clears throat> my beef is with people like that who want to get better but do not take the necessary steps to get better. And um, I think all of us fall into that category to some extent, but, but you know, in my own defense, like whatever weaknesses there are in my game, and there are many, I do work very, very hard to rectify them. I've been working on this two-handed backhand for the last you know, month, and prior to that I was working on 
different grip. I was trying to get it fixed. So much I've been working so hard on it that my body is actually beginning to fall apart. Um, so you know, say what you will about me, but but I do put effort into my game. So I'm gonna I'm gonna use Ian as an example, but I think this applies to a lot of people. Ian, when you are at the net, you've said your game is a 5-0. And I actually disagree, because I think your game at the net is a 5-5. Yes. Your, your, your game at the net is, has gotten so good. Your athleticism is the best in our group. Your Ernie's are terrifying. Your backhand, whatever you call it, volley shot, whatever it is, is amazing. Your counters, your dinking is is so good. You you make us move around. Really, really solid game. But as you have acknowledged, and as we discussed in our last live stream commentary, your returns and your thirds are subpar. They're no better than four zero. And uh, and you know this, and you've known it for some time. But when was the last time that you took a lesson to work? on your thirds or your returns. When was the last time you went out with a ball machine and just hit balls, Do like you third count? shot drops for an hour? Do you count? Because it's probably been over a month on the return and six months for the drops. Yeah, yeah. So you, you're not doing what you need to do and you know you need to do to get better. The, the, the roadmap was provided by Chris Olson, our um, podcast rival, in that great video he did where he did 15,000 two-handed backhand drives. And not only did he do that, but he took a lesson with a very high-level pro. And you could see by the end how much better his third shot drive, two-handed uh, backhand drive got. And it's like, I would kill for your skill set, Ian. But if I were you, I would go take some lessons with Greg Williams, or another top, you know, top-level teacher pro, and uh, I would do 15,000 two-hand backhands, 15,000 forehand drives, 15,000 backhand drops, and 15,000 forehand drops, and then you would be a 5-0 plus player by the end of that, and it would take you like a couple months to do. So if you've got a weakness in the, in your game, listeners, and you want to get better, you're serious about getting better. Go take some lessons and go drill. It's that simple. That's my beef. People who do not do that. Tim, what, what did we talk about uh, getting personal with beefs there? <laughs> <laughs> we have to go into the excuse jar and pull something out. Very nice. No, but that that's that is really good stuff, Jesse. He really and, hit fifteen thousand backhands. Yeah, and it only took him, I think, three weeks. He did it twice a day. And is man, like, he got really good at it. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> yeah. People used to joke about him. The joke was three five at best, and now he's playing. He's playing four five, and he's like meddling. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, it, it is impressive. But I, he that was an experiment. I don't know how. I mean, he did that one time. I don't think that's his drilling regiment. I could not keep that pace with life and my daughter's sports schedules and everything. So. Oh, then do then do you know then spread it out over a longer period maybe do ten thousand not fifteen thousand maybe it takes you six weeks not three weeks but don't use that as an excuse to not drill at all no yeah your your point is very well taken and I think Jesse it, you can hear listeners can hear viewers can hear that the level of dedication Jesse has to getting better and 
you know, you Jesse, you wish you had whatever percent of Ian's athletic ability. I, uh, we all could, if we had 0.1% of your dedication and drive to getting better, we would all be five foes. You are a type of person that is, is it's not normal in a good way to have your drive and dedication. And, and so I just want to commend you for that because, because that is, that is something you cannot teach. You cannot teach hustle. I've seen it in baseball all my whole life. Like, the most talented kids in the world fail, but yet people below them excel. Why? Because they put in the work. Not everyone's willing to put in the work. That is a uh, that is a characteristic trait that makes who you who you are. And and gosh darn it, that's so special. I want you to recognize that, and that's awesome. Well, and and um, you know that that beef is is definitely true. I hope I take away from that. I do not drill near enough. Um, but we can all get better. And it's with, with that type of drive mentality and dedication to this sport that we love. So good, good comments. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nine out of 10 of my drill sessions have been with that guy. So <laughs> the sensei, uh, yeah, the sensei himself. So my voice is starting to hurt. So I'll keep my beef short and sweet. And my beef is that the most watched pickleball matches of all time have been involving tennis players. Jack Sock and Annalie Waters, when he made his pickleball debut, and Andre Agassi and those three other old timer tennis guys did this awesome stadium where they dropped the light on the you know, like the stadium lighting, and that had so many views. So, my beef is that the tennis players are invading. See, I'm I'm stay I'm staying on tennis. I've got a vendetta going. Is that is that it's pickleball? And the most watched stuff is pickleball with tennis players. And that just annoys me. I think you're reading this the wrong way, though, Ian. Oh, yeah? We, sh we should be excited about this because what that represents is tennis players coming over to pickleball. That's why people are excited about it. Mm, They're converting true. just like I did, just like Scott did, just like Louie did. Bryce's. Jack Sock just retired from tennis and is now signed with Selkirk going full time. I think he's going to pass Ben Johns, honestly. Yeah. I mean, that's why it's fascinating to me, though, is these guys are seeing the light. It's a feel-good story. Yeah, yeah I think I, I see it in, in a different tune, too. Um, any – it's what's what's the PR comment? Any any publicity, publicity, publicity. is good it's good publicity. If you're using tennis to excel the sport of pickleball, thank you very much. We'll take it. Um, and I would also say it's not just tennis. It's these all, all the major sports you see. I've watched videos, clips of Tim Tebow hitting volleys in the kitchen illegally. And then I've, I've seen <laughs> Drew, Drew Brees out there. I've seen these Dirk Nowitzki monster wingspans out there. Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant. Uh, LeBron James has bought a team or whatever as a part owner. It's, it's not exclusive to tennis. I see what you're saying, but I think that's actually good for the sport because it's just going to draw people over here. And we're, and it's actually shaming tennis players. Like, look, your sport sucks. Come over to ours. Cause that's what everyone's doing. And it's the new, new cool thing. So I think it's actually really good. I hear you. I hear it. Can you imagine being six ten with Kevin Durant's wingspan of seven three, I think. Just he's just gonna hold his paddle and touch the net. Like it's gotta be insane. What is what is the optimal height for a pickleball player? Is it taller is always better? Seven four. Seven four. Actually I do have an opinion on this. I think that once you pass about six five, you start to diminish because the net is so much lower 
you're kind of swinging at your thigh level for most of the balls. Like our, our buddy, uh, um, Jeff Konefsky, is on on the shorter side. He's 5'4", five, 5'5". Five, five. And one of the reasons I find him so dangerous is when he's taking, like, the kitchen, kitchen volleys, he's kind of swinging them at, like, bicep height, right? Like, he can get full swings at them, They're like, and really hit down on them. Um, now, that also hurts him with, with, you know, court coverage and lobs, right? So, like, it's a give and take. So, I, I do think there's a diminishing return once you get tall enough, and I've arbitrarily dictated that number in my own mind to 6'5", just having played with a couple tall dudes. I, I think the sport evolves as as the players do. And so if you are six, seven and above with extreme basketball players are the most athletic people in the world. And yes. once once you get them to figure out the mechanics of the game, like if they are true four fives and above and understand, they are going to be able to evolve this sport to places that we don't even comprehend right now. Imagine them them. Uh, straddling the corner of the kitchen on the left side with their arm reaching all the way to the middle of the court. Like you're yeah. taking away a full side of, of the court with the understanding of how to play this game. And and imagine dink, dink volleys, like where they're straddling from an Ernie and they're just living there. I don't know. I think, I think the evolution of this game is going to change as the athletes start to come in at different athletes progress into this sport. Um, and I think those diminishing returns, um, don't exist. I think it's going to it change the game. I love it. I love it. All right, guys, let's get into the topic. The shake and bake. That's a bit of a funky term. So, Tim, I want to pass it over to you real quick and please explain what a shake and bake is. Okay. A shake and bake has to do with the third shot. It starts with the third shot, and that is typically a drive. And the point of it is to get the opponents off balance with your drive and have your your partner run up there and clean up whatever's left. So you drive it at them very hard or very low. They pop it up or they block it without very much force on their, on their shot. Your partner is there smelling blood and he puts it away. That is a shake and bake. Excellent. Excellent. And who of our group uses that shake and bake? I know Tim and I are, fiends of using it especially when together jesse do you do you use it that much i don't think you do no um i think i tried it in a rec game once with banu and he kept hitting his thirds into the net so we kind of abandoned it after five minutes yeah, still i know you're, you're you're still coming back and still getting your legs on you even though oh, been, i'm back I'm you're back 100 100 Okay, well, yeah, but I saw you dinking yesterday. I don't know if that's true, <laughs> dude. I beat you twice and we won once. I, what's this slandering of my name with you uh, by my side? That's that's horrible. Um, you you bet your bottom dollar I freaking shake and bake. Are you out of your mind? But the thing is, um, I look for every opportunity to do it. it and it, regardless of the name shake and bake or if there's ever a thing a ball above my belly button i'm attacking that thing with relentless pursuit of just just blood in the water i'm coming at you no matter what um but the, the truth to the matter is at, at four or five plus you just don't see it that often i feel like i feel like um well maybe because everyone knows my my 
my poaching and, and, and all that. And so they purposely will, will do anything to get away from it. But I feel like we don't see that many pop-ups that often to where I can poach as much anymore, but yeah, God, yeah, I do shake. Well, you're, you're often the baker, right? You're not really the guy who shakes it. I would think. No, I call it a shake and take, bud. I don't bake. I'm just, you shake it up. I'm going to take it up. Cause that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> oh my gosh. So funny, Tim, when you're running the shake and bake, where do you drive it or where do you drop it? Talk about kind of your thoughts on how you approach it. Um, so you and I have gotten actually very technical and precise about this process. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, uh, shortly. But if you're just uh, freewheeling out there, freestyling, and it's your third shot, I, I happen to drive a lot of third shots. And um, hopefully whoever I'm playing with realize uh, realizes that I'm probably going to drive that thing and they're already halfway up to the kitchen line to try to clean up whatever's left off my drive. But um, there's a debate as to whether or not a, a drive in general is more effective if it's low or, or hard. And I kind of don't have a strong opinion about that. Um, but I just try to hit a good drive. A good drive is ideally it's both. It, it's low and hard. And if you can do that where, where the guy at the net has to worry about the pace that the ball is coming at them with and the height over the net, and hopefully it's dipping, it's got some walk to it, and we've talked about the walk before, then that ball is going to pop up a little bit off their paddle and my partner's going to be there to smash it. So yep. it, it just needs to be a good drive. However you define that, it, it needs to be a good drive. I think... If a drive goes in, you know, it's automatically a little bit low, I think, for some people. Unless you're like a Louie who's got more of a loopy drive, you know. But, comes up um, high, then comes down. Yep, yep. But a lot of drives are flatter, I would say, and more line drive-ish. So that uh, most drives, if they're hit well, are going to be low and with some pace anyway. So I think uh, just that's my goal, just hit a good drive. And ideally, you want to hit it sort of in the middle of the court from I'd say the middle of of one side over to the middle of the other side so like that middle what like two-thirds or whatever so yeah why the why the middle because it's easier for the baker to come in and poach I think it just takes angles away from the volleyer um, if you're hitting a, a really sharp angle cross court or down the line I think it takes it away from the middle of the court for your partner as as they're poaching. I think, uh, in general, the poacher wants to be s sort of in the middle of the court and take that whole area. So you're trying to drive it so that the volley uh, response will go into their area where they are. Yeah. As the other shaker in this group, I actually got, I think of it very differently than you do, Tim. When I'm shaking for you and you're crashing you're you're baking or as Stoltz says taking i'm not particularly worried about where i place it in relation to my opponents i'm purely focused on you and i know that your your finishes are a little bit better on your forehand side than your backhand side although the backhand like you're you're about even but i would think you're just a little bit better at finishing power on your forehand side and so depending on the side of the court i'm on i will try and drop that ball 
just to the to the T on your side of the court, whether that's the right or left. Because I know from there, they're probably not going to go behind you. But that still gives you plenty of time in the middle to run around if you're going from right to left, or especially from left to right, hitting your forehand straight down the middle. So I'm thinking about where does Tim need the ball? And that also comes in with my uh, proclivity to, to lean towards the beta. I'm, even when I'm dinking and I'm, I'm doing these things, I'm thinking about where your strong points are and trying to get the ball funneled into that direction. Um, so I definitely pick my locations based on your approach, where you are and which side of the court you're on. But I've actually found that driving it as hard as you can is less effective than hitting like a 60 to 70% pace top spin drive like almost we, we use the, the walk as reference all the time take a walk amp it up just a little bit and those are the ones that you just feast on dude because they're they're slow enough that you are able to crash in behind it and 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 scan everything but it's fast enough that it's still challenging for them and also when you take that pace off of it you have more dwell time on your paddle and if you really rip through that on the top spin whether it's the two-handed backhand or the forehand, that thing comes down and dies, so they can't hit it flat through the net, right? It's like right into the tape. They have to put some upward trajectory on it. And unless they absolutely capitulate to a soft dink angle, you're right there. And it's just like, I don't ever have to come off the baseline. I just watch you do your thing up there. And it's it's utterly fantastic. And can you define walk for those unfamiliar with the How term? would you define a walk, Tim? We've tried to, we've tried to do this before. So a walk is uh, effort. W O K is yes, the walk. Yes, because it is an ode to our buddy Jeff Ma, um, who is Chinese. Um, so it's also similar to effort described as a drip, a drive drop, a drip. So it's like a line drive, uh, medium paced hit shot that is dipping by the time it crosses the net into the opponent's kitchen area. So they have to actually get low and hit up on that. And unless they have fantastic, amazing soft hands, that ball is going to be right there in the strike zone for a finisher. Yep. So, it's characterized by that, that it's flat and then has that sharp descent right at the end. Kind of when it gets to that kitchen zone, just dies and just goes straight down. Yep. Yep. And it's so, a, it's, it's a very difficult shot to hit. And going back to Jesse's beef, that's one that we can all get better hitting because it's, it's worth it. It's, it's really, it really I don't care how, it. I don't care how good your third shot drop is or your third shot drive is. If you can develop that shot, um, I mean, sky's the limit for how much you can do out there. It is so deadly effective. And a lot of people will just try to use kinetic force and overpower um, when they're driving. And that's not often the best approach. Some guys, like, maybe they're a little bit lower level or they're playing a guy they know is better than them, and they're just like, I got to crunch this thing as hard as I can, put it through their body, blast it through, make a passing shot, even when they're established, like, hit it that hard. And often that I, I've discovered as I've evolved this part of my game, that's not nearly as effective as just taking some juice off of it Letting your paddle skill, let your paddle action really create that scenario for your baker. Stolp. Yeah. As probably, I would say, 
well, you and you and Timmy are in the running for best baker, but I do think you're certainly the most imposing, and you'll you'll cross the whole court to get your bake. Doesn't matter. Like you're just you're like if you're up there, you're gonna go take it. How do you approach? Like, what's your thought process as the shakers hitting their shot? What are you thinking, and how are you? That's so funny. I was listening to all of you talk, and um, <clears throat> you're very cognitive. Uh, orchestrated chess players out there. You're th and that's what I think as you, as you get in the higher level levels, you have to be that you have to think about where your opponent's weaknesses are, how to expose them, how to get the shots that you want so that you can perform things like a shake and bake. Whereas I think of myself as a reactive player and, and using some of those fast twitch muscles and intuition um, and, and, and getting to spots before they happen, just, based off of, you know, my, my reaction time. And so for me, um, when I think about a shake and bake and, and taking and, and poaching and doing all these things, that's in my DNA to want to do that. Um, I don't actually, I, I don't think about it as much as you guys, um, because I'm just so naturally aggressive. And maybe this is, you know, where my, my, game needs to improve to who's be less... the idiot now no i'm definitely I, I i always come on here and say i'm the blockhead alpha like i'm the i'm the dope who's just wants to i want to hit it as hard as i can and you you yeah he's got a good fastball but he ain't seen my fastball like yeah like that i'm that guy but it's it's not necessarily the best strategy as you start moving up um but I don't I'm not thinking about, oh we need to shake and bake here only in one one scenario and you talked about drives and drips and and all this um i think a good communication point is when you're playing against a lefty and they're not stacking and typically they'll stack on on offense all the time but if there's a situation where the backhands are in the middle so the the righty's on the right the the lefty's on the left and then there's a good opportunity for a, a solid drive drop um in the in the middle um where you can you can use their backhand or expose their backhand to elicit a pop-up and then you attack. That'd be a communication point I'd do to one of you smarter players to be like, Hey, their, 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 their backhands are exposed in the middle. Let's, let's go after the lefty or whatever. But other than that, I'm just reacting, man. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just playing the game that I like and, and using the intuition I have with, with the game. Um, so, so I have a question for mainly for Ian and Tim, uh, Ian, this was about, maybe six months ago you were driving I was running up trying to, to to do shake and bake I was trying to be the baker and you told me hey you're cutting me off stop that mm. and Tim when I played with you you said when I drive stay back so uh, I'm not butthurt or anything but I clearly <laughs> you guys have something in mind about my game that makes me not be a good baker so so what are the qualities you look for when when you're looking for a, a high quality baker I, I got it. I got a quick answer, and and I I know what you're referencing because you're not the only person who has heard those words from me, um, and it's with guys who like like uh, Mike McGregor, the pro at Lifetime, is so fast at getting up. He actually doesn't look backwards to see what you're doing. He just like stole. He gets up there and relies on his skill and his speed and his reaction time. So he's not doing any evaluation other than going to assume I'm going to get hit a good third or uh, a, a good driver, a good drop on my third. And what I found when he and I were playing a little bit together in some rec games in the morning, 
I, when I was on the left side, I have a my best drop, and we've already discussed my drops aren't great, but my best drop is going from an inside-out forehand left corner towards the my right side of the kitchen or our opponent's left side of the kitchen, left side player's backhand. And I've hit people before, including Mike, because as I'm hitting that shot, and I'm, I'm pretty good at threading it pretty tight, they'll get to the kitchen so fast that I'll end up they'll like literally cut off that lane that I'm trying to 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 shoot through and I'll hit them in their in their back. Or I know that they're gonna gonna cut me off and so I have to try and make some weird adjustments and I hit it too low or I hit it out or I hit it high. And so when I'm baking, I am thinking I'm following in the wake of the ball. So when Tim, I, I step a little bit out to the side when Tim's shaking for me, and I watch it. As soon as he hits it, I try and get in behind the ball and follow that to the kitchen line so that not only can I see what his ball is doing, I can also see my opponents, and I'm not impeding him in any way. So that's what that particular comment is in reference to, and I have a lot of trouble with people who just get up there, hell, hell water and high fury, instead of being very cognizant and traveling in the wake of my ball. But I'm curious, Tim, how, how you respond to that. No, I totally agree. I do not think that now as good as Mike McGregor is, he's, he's freaking awesome. Um, he's cutting you off. He's limiting your options with where to go with that ball because he's, he's literally in the way. So you do have to approach um, with the correct timing. I, I think, and that comes with time. Um, experience just playing with your partner and uh you know the shake and bake thing is it takes a lot of a lot of orchestration and and communication i dare say so you do have to talk to your partner and and figure out the correct timing of this whole thing if it's going to be effective because that right there what you're describing it's like okay so he's cut off half the court that you can use for your shot or you're going to hit him <laughs> but um so that just makes it a little bit simpler for your opponents. Like, well, he's not going to go where Mike is or where whoever is. He's going to go to uh, the guy on the right side. So, I mean, if they can cut down your options in that regard, then that's a benefit to them. That's 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 going to help them out. But Jesse, um, I'm trying to think what what I may have been talking about when I was when I was telling you to stay back off my drive. I guess it, it just oh. I, I know. I actually know what it is because I've had this thought with you, Tim, and you can tell me if, if I'm wrong, but I think I know. It's when you're shaking for me, you hit it so fast and so low that if I'm even a little bit out of position, it and, and, and even if you're a little high, they block it back so hard. Your drives generally don't have that dropping action. They're just so fast, so low all the time. You're always keeping within six inches of the net. That's why people have trouble with it. But if they can block it back linearly, it is a freaking hard ball to deal with. And so when I'm when I see you're really about to rip a, a third drive, I actually slow down so that my timing is different than when I when say Jesse's driving it or I'm driving it, right? Because nobody hits it as fast as you do. So that rebound, that counter punch, that block is just using your energy and sending it back. And so Jesse. You, there was a time where you're like, I just got to get up to the kitchen. You're getting there, hurting yourself based on the pace that that Tim is sending that ball. 
Yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense that he wouldn't be up. Uh, he might be in the in the middle of the back area of the court and not in a position to really inflict much damage at that point. So, <clears throat> or even if you get up there, you're trying to take a half volley at your waist or at your knees. Like, yeah, that's a tough shot to be at from there. It, this is so interesting because then I, I started <clears throat> putting in my mind, I'm the biggest target out of all of us in terms of getting in the way. And I don't feel like I'm ever in the way with, with you sh uh, shakers. And it's because of footwork and timing. I think that is such a critical component to this. And um, <clears throat> I was thinking of my footwork. I take, I take three very intentional, larger, moderately paced steps to get up to the kitchen. That's the advantage I have as a tall person because then I can wait back as the third is delivered, drive or drop, and with three very methodical steps, it's actually three. It's it's uh it's three big steps and a chop step. It's three and a half steps, and and I'm playing this in my mind, and I'm in a position whether it's it's at the kitchen, slightly behind the kitchen, to make it make an, a play to a poach as that <clears throat> fourth is delivered. Um, so that's it's it's footwork and timing that comes with playing with each other. I think I think there's a lot of trust from from our group and, and understanding of these things um, because I can't do what McGregor does and not look at the ball. I have to actually play off of what what that that current shot is doing so that I can adjust to the to the next one. But what it is is off ball footwork and timing, and that comes with playing with your partner. And, and, you know, you already made fun of yourself for not being cognitive about it, but you really are just naturally good at timing your approach, reading where the ball is going to go, how to play it. Now, your only downside is sometimes you're just overly aggressive and you're just like, no matter what kind of fourth shot they hit, I'm going to be aggressive. And, mm -hmm. you know, maybe that does need to be dialed back. But, yeah, you just automatically know because you're athletic and you've been doing sports your whole life. That timing is really, really important. So, uh, Tim, you, we didn't get your thoughts on the on the baking. So we got Stolp in mind on how the baker should approach, but I don't really know how what you're thinking when I'm shaking for you. So we've kind of evolved on our approach to this whole thing. Um, at the beginning, we had a very orchestrated, play call oriented <laughs> type approach to shaking and baking, and then we've kind of evolved to let's let the baker get a feel for what's going on up there when he gets up there and, and feel the situation out and be able to react to what's going on with the volleyer. Um, and so when I get up there as the baker, I want to be right in front of the guy that's volleying. So I have to get up there quick. I have to be able to read where that volley might be going, whether it's to my forehand or my backhand. So I do want to be in the middle of the court there. I want to be in the, in the middle of the kitchen line so that I can jump and pounce as early as I possibly can off of that ball. And so that's what I'm trying to do. Now, it's very demanding on the driver, on the shaker, because that ball, if it's not a great drive, then I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of a sitting duck, like especially if I'm right in front of them. Now, I have fast hands, so I can survive up there a lot of the time, but it really is still demanding. If you're trying to get the upper hand in that exchange a, a lot a lot is dependent on uh, with that drive like, uh, which is kind of why we stopped doing it so regularly because it just wasn't always practical to hit that good of a drive every single time for your third so 
we introduced a lot of uh, a lot of freedom for that third ball hitter. Like you don't have to drive every single time. If it's not there, it just it won't always make sense to hit a drive. But I think in general, you and I, whichever one is baking, we're still running up there as fast as we can. Not too fast, as as we said, but when it is time to go, you go. Yeah. And whether it's off of a drop or a drive, um, we do try to implement that. I think pretty much every time we uh, hit a third now. And a big part of that, why you and I are so good at it, I think, is because we can finish with our forehand or our backhand. And not everybody can do that. That's one of those skills, again, that uh, Jesse was alluding to, I think. Not everybody has the has the finishing ability with their backhand. A lot of people do on their forehand, but not their backhand. And you you become so much more versatile if, if you can finish with either hand. So that's why it works so well with you and me. Go ahead, Jess. Yeah, so I just want to say a couple things. First of all, when this strategy is deployed by two people who are really good at it, and I mean like strong 4-5 and up, it's devastating. Um, it's extremely difficult to deal with, for me anyway. I mean, I'm not great at handling pace in the first place, but when you've got like Tim up in your grill as you're trying to take this this fourth shot, it's terrifying. And um, it can end, it, a game can end in minutes because these are very short rallies. And it's it's like a blitzkrieg. It's like by the time you even realize what's happening, the game is over. Um, Having said that, I think this is a strategy that you tend to see, like I said, at four, strong 4-5 four, and up. You're not going to, I never saw it at 4-0 or 3-5 because it's hard to hit a good drive. And you need actually two players that can hit good drives because if only one of them is good at hitting good drives, well, then you can just hit it to the other guy. And if one of them is a dangerous poacher, well, you hit it to him. You keep the poacher back. So when we used to play um, uh, uh, Jason Moeller, I would hit to him because I knew he was an excellent poacher and that would keep him back. So you, you need, there's just a certain skill set that's required that's pretty high level. You need to be able to hit really good drives. It helps if you can hit them with your forehand and your backhand. And then you need to be able to hit those poaches with your forehand and your backhand. Um, but if you, if the listener is in a in the 4-5 range, um, you will see this strategy, and and you, you're going to want to learn to get used to it. I, I love that you bring up the skill sets thing because I think it, it really is – the shake and bake is more of an advanced play. And it's not cognitively difficult to understand this, right? Okay, the guy who takes the third rips it at the opponents, and the other guy charges the net and tries to attack the, 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 uh, their fourth shot. But – you do have to have everything because you have to have a drive that's challenging but not too high that they're just going to put it away. You have to be fast enough to get up there and also have fast hands to handle the volley re, uh, counter. But also if they decide to capitulate and go slow, you have to have the lateral movement to probably cover your driver. Let's say that Tim is on the left and he drives for me and I'm coming up the right and I'm up in their grill, they don't want to mess with my backhand, so they're just like, we'll capitulate the kitchen. And they hit a nice, soft, angled shot, kind of cross-court block dink thing. Tim's all the way on the baseline. You also have to be able to cover for him, take that seven, eight feet, 
and then get a lift dink and either switch based on what his call out is or then get back in place as he fills in the void that you've now created. So it, you have to have not, you have to have fast hands, you have to have soft hands, you have to have good recognition, you have to have a good, have a good third drive. It's like if you don't have all the tools, all the skills in your bag, at least at a high level, you can't pull it off because you're going to find some way to get exposed because a lot of stuff is going on all at mm. once here. <clears throat> I think it's interesting because I'll take the counter to that position of I think I saw it coming up as a three, five to four five way more than I do now. Um, and it was probably not by design, but more by just dumb luck and, me, and and it's just it's just i'm looking for the poach at all times so i'd get more <clears throat> pop-ups um at at three five to four five there's a lot of lot more banging going on in general so there's a lot you know on the third shot no matter where it is you're seeing it more and the thirds are in general uh not as good as they are now i think so much depends on on the third shot and and tim <clears throat> will attack uh, uh you know an attackable third but now at the four or five plus level i feel like it is it is the majority uh of folks that have decent third shots that don't allow you to put a good drive on the ball therefore you don't get the opportunity to shake and bake so i feel like i see it less because of because of the quality of play on the thirds um and then yes you need all those other skills and to 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 make this thing work but i would argue that i saw it more at the lower levels and now less at the higher levels because you need way more things to work in your favor um that just you just don't see that often are you talking about just seeing it implemented or seeing it successful seeing it su successful i i don't think it was like a, a an implementable strategy at the lower levels i think it just happens you're like oh shake yeah. and bake you know what so i let mean me, let, let me give you a scenario i am defending like uh, uh let's say anyone anyone pick pick any random guy who's got ryan spryland great drive if he's driving at me and i've got jared tim or Stolp crashing as the baker on me. I'm not going to just try and punch that through them. I'm just going to capitulate and I'm going to drop it or, or cross court dink it. So a lot of times you, you don't think it's successful is because the threat is so real that you just end up getting to the net. And it's actually a good strategy to use. If guys are scared of what kinetic energy you can bring, it's almost like an auto up, right? Now the guy who's hitting the third has to get on his wheels because it can be challenging to take that cross-court block, um, especially if it's a little bit softer. But I would say that's why it's not successful at our level, because we have several guys who are quite potent at finishing for fourth shots with their fifths. Um, so it's implemented a lot. So as, as someone who's been subjected to the shake and bake, I want to just talk about what I see and how I try to deal with it. So typically... The person that's driving is back and so there's this tendency to hit the ball to that person so like like I'm standing here up at the net and Ian is way back and that ball comes to me I'm gonna hit it usually to that open space to the player that's deep but see that's what Tim expects so he's coming over waiting for me to do exactly that and it's not like I'm popping it up either like it's like popping it up six inches it's not like I'm like, ooh, you know, eight feet in the air. It's like a pretty decent kind of like a normal block shot. But Tim is expecting it, so he comes swooping in and, and kills it. 
Um, so the correct shot is very counterintuitive as that defending player, like you say, Ian, you want to go the other direction. You want to go actually cross court to where Tim is. And uh, he's probably not expecting it. And um, it, it just, um, you, you better get the hang of that real quick because if you do what comes naturally, you're going to get killed. But then mm -hmm. that invites the chess match. So the say, cowboy. Um, yeah, Tim, in a second, I want you to elaborate. <laughs> We're running close on time, but I do want to talk about it. If I'm driving you, Jesse, and Tim is opposite you, right? Like the lane is open between you and me. I'm driving right. at you. Then he, you're, you want to hit it back to me. But then when you do that, he predicts it. He crosses it off. So that time it works. Next time I drive at you, you go behind him and it works. So from there, you've taken both options. Each of you have, it's one-to-one -one on success. That third drive, do you play it down the middle or do you play it behind him? And what ends up happening is this weird, I love the, the goats on a bridge, this standoff. You don't know where you're going to, can, can I rock, paper, scissors you? Are you going to go behind me this time or are you going to play it, play it honestly and true? You know, and so if you play it behind me and you win, it's a winner. If you play it down the line and I stay true, I'm just probably going to drop it or drive it again. And so you get this really funky chess match. Where it's all happening so fast. It's all yeah. happening so fast. <laughs> that's why I think that the skill set, you have to have everything you have. Because fast hands isn't actually fast hands. We all can shake our arms and shake our paddles fast. It's processing speed and being able to do stuff with it is is that's the fast hands. Yeah, so, you, that's a great point. Yeah, it is. Go ahead, go ahead. I, I was going to say, as, as the um, baker, you know, I have, let's call it 75% of, like, that's my take range is what I'm going to do. You know what good players do, Jesse, as you playing out that scenario? They will, they will thread the needle in that 25% to hit it in the backcourt away, from, like, just far enough for me to not, not go after it. And so that was the remedy, like, so as I've been a, a heavy poacher through my everyday life here people as you move up are so good at threading the needle away from that 25 percent that i can't reach and it's just yep. it actually boggles my mind in this goat chess match that people have the ability to handle a drive and do that to keep away from my poach and it just sets up the point so well unless the drive is so good and they don't do it right tim uh talk about cowboys and indians you and i ran an experiment for a couple weeks with shake and bake that we dubbed cowboys and indians can you try yeah. to elaborate on that? I'll fill in and, the gaps of where we need to. And it was largely successful. Like, I think every time we tried it, we, I don't we know did if not we ever, lose a game. I don't know if we ever lost a game. It just didn't feel that ugly. clean. So yeah, ugly. it didn't feel clean, but that was kind of the point of the whole thing is that how many points do you really win on your serve anyway? Like maybe if you're really good, half or 40%, I don't know. I don't know what the number is, but it didn't feel clean. And yet we kept winning. So it originated after um, a tournament that Louie and I played in. And we lost in the finals to Jason and Matt. And afterwards, we started sharing some ideas about, you know, how we could get better. But I realized that my natural partner in something like this was somebody like Ian, who has a forehand drive and a backhand drive, a forehand finish and that backhand finish like that's what you need we just talked about that so we talked about doing it as as almost a play call situation and how we and we talked about it a lot um and what we figured out was um the server would call 
and we called it uh, Cowboys or Indians. The cowboy, well, I'll talk about Indians first. Indians is, it, it doesn't matter who handles that third shot drive. It, it's going to be a drive. It's going to be cross court in front of the guy that is baking. Okay, so it's going to be to the uh, volleyer who's cross court from him. It was always cross court. It was always Never cross done. court right in the middle of that guy's kitchen area, right? And the baker would be crashing on that. And so if it was, if the call was Indian, and again, the server would make this call. If the call was Indian, uh, the baker would always poach uh, right in front of that guy. Okay. And the server's job would be to cover his backside. If it went behind him, if the volley went behind him, if the guy got smart and redirected it uh, behind the poacher, which uh, Jesse was just talking about as a smart thing to do, right? If the call was cowboy, that baker would stay. He would stay right there and keep that volleyer honest in case he tried to go behind him like every single time. He can't do that if we're throwing in the cowboy uh, play call. And it was... And then in every case, the uh, third shot um, uh, driver would have to cover whatever the empty space was um, that the poacher was leaving vacant. So he'd have to go behind him in some cases on the Indian play call. And that's what we kept on running into issues with is the driver, for some reason, would keep forgetting to do that. I'm not sure why. He can't do this. Like, I don't know how many times Ian and I were able to, to... actually practice this not we like four and oh with it we only did like four or five games right you like need that. more than that and let's be honest you need more time doing this because it is so choreographed um but that is the idea uh, with cowboys and indians and i think you know i'd like to hear your thoughts as to why we don't do it anymore and like i said earlier it's kind of evolved to let's give the poacher some more freedom up there to read the situation so that he doesn't have a uh, set instruction for what to do, whether it's the poacher to stay. Let's let him feel that situation out. But I do kind of miss the play calling aspect of it because uh, it was so cool and inventive. Yeah, but I'd yeah. like to hear y- your thoughts as to why we stopped doing that as much as we were. Yeah, it was a ton of fun. Um, Indian meant that we were going to cross and switch on the poach no matter what. Cowboy was you're just going to stay in your side. And that did create a lot of interesting scenarios for our opponents because they didn't know what we were calling and it took our decision making out of it. I actually didn't struggle as much with the coming covering on Indian as, as you did. Now I definitely let like forgot several times. Um, but where I found I had the most struggle, um, and particularly in what I felt I was locking you into doing. So if I called cowboy, cowboy or Indian, I was telling you, how you had to play and what i realized was if i got to to and i think our our, agree with me or not our most successful shake and bake is when i'm shaking and you're baking now i've definitely had some really clean putaways but the way i can hit that that arc on my third it's a little bit more walky than what you do and you're finishing at the net is just ridiculous and so what i found was when i was hitting my thirds you would be forced into a decision. It's like, no, I want you to read, to process, to see what's going on, and you make the decision. And then I can play off. So you could cowboy or Indian, stay or stay or go no matter what. I just, I felt it was actually too limiting 
based on your skill set. You didn't need a governor. You needed all the shackles removed and just to play what you saw. And so once we, once I kind of realized, I was like, why am I, why are we putting this limiter on Tim or me? We can both just read the game. So let's just read the game. And once we made that switch where we abandoned it, we, it was like, it's much more effective, but a lot of the principles that we learned while doing it, where if that guy switches, you have to cover behind him, right? Or how, if we get locked in an I formation, how do you play from there? So there was a lot of good that came out of it, but with, with your ability to adapt and, you know, fast hands is really your ability to process the game in front of you. Why am I going to say, don't cross the court I think actually the, the moment now as I'm, I'm verbalizing it, excuse me, the moment for me was <clears throat> so sorry when we called cowboy and you're supposed to stay, and then you ended up switching anyway and put it away, and I was like, why take away that opportunity? Just I audible, your, just audible, yeah. <laughs> let your freak flag fly. So anyway, that was kind of kind of kind of how that that whole development went. Well, it's kind of what Stolp was just talking about, how he doesn't like to think through these things too much. He wants to let his his instincts take over. I mean, that is what is so fun about pickleball is is sort of the art of it and being able to process things in real time and just and thinking through it. However you do that, whether it's intuition or if you have more of a plan going on in your head, but... I don't like taking that away. Like, I love that part of the game. I love options. I love options. I want to trust myself with those options. And I want to trust my partner with those options. Let him do that thing too. So I think that's what was unsatisfying about the Cowboys and Indians experiment is that it, it was just too structured. It's like, ah, uh, yeah. You know, let me flap my wings and fly a little mm. bit. You know? Yeah. I'm uh, not to rain on your parade, but that was like nails on a chalkboard for me because it's too structured. You know, in my mind right there, if you've ever seen the Simpsons it episode, took too much thinking, guys. right? No, in, in my mind, when you guys were just talking, I was like cross eyed and Homer Simpson was in a cheerleading costume going do 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 hey do 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 that's what's in my brain when that stuff was going on because i'm like dude you're telling me i have to do this when that happens and that when this happens and you're i have to orchestrate the point before we even see what happens like oh my gosh i i would not thrive in that environment but everybody's a little bit different and if you guys saw success from it um great but Tim, I would I would argue like your audible that you got so much satisfaction from and put away a ball like that's the style of play that works for you. Um, I would I would rely more on that. But that's just me. Well, Stolp, you have trouble remembering the score False. every you, single you rally, re dude. I'm gonna call you out. You forgot the score yesterday. I remembered the score. <laughs> this is the n number two time you just slandered my name, and it was you that forgot. You freaking hypocrite. Got to get my hits in where I can. <clears throat> and I had this thought. Unless there's something else, if you guys want to add on it, what we we're just talking about, I have slight pivot that I was thinking about. And Jesse, it's like when we talk about what skill sets you need in order to accomplish this, I actually think that you can be a very effective shaker. So when you drive, I think because you don't see yourself as having tons of power, you're not a driver, you default to the, I'm just gonna rip it through their hearts. I'm gonna hit it as hard as I can, maximum effort. 
And I'm just wondering, I don't know if I've ever seen you try to hit a walk. Like, right, you either drop it or you drive it through their spleen. Like, and, and I can't cognitively think about if you have any middle ground there. And so even though you may not ever be able to be the most effective baker, I still think that guys like you can still play at least half the component. Because if, if you and Tim are next to each other, both of you can shake it, right? Now Tim will be baking, um, and, and you won't be baking off of him. But they'll still send the thirds to him that they have to handle a tough drive. Like even if you're not doing a traditional shake and bake, people don't like to return to Tim because that third shot is just – it's very demoralizing and difficult to deal with. So I even wonder if there's people kind of in, in your like kind of category who can still be very effective at setting up your baker just by adjusting how you hit your third. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think uh, like you mentioned, a 70% speed dipping third. And I think that's something I could develop. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very drillable shot. Uh, me and Michelle have talked about her being the shaker in mixed. She doesn't have enormous power, but she can hit that shot. So uh, I do think there's potential there. Awesome, awesome. Any final thoughts, you guys? This has been such a good conversation. Really enjoyed it. Um, bring in all of the high-level, advanced, cognitive thinking straight to you guys. I, I just love these conversations. Like, we're, we're such addicts about pickleball. I would like, like to bring up one thing, though, if I could. Yeah. Um, I like... I like what Jesse was trying to get to. How do you defend this? How would you defend it, Ian? How would you defend it still? On the shake and bake? Yeah. So assuming both guys can shake it, I'm going to put it into the back left corner, left side player's backhand because most guys can't drive it effectively from there. You and I can. Louie can. Um but a lot of guys can't. So that's one way to just kind of eliminate the speed ball. Now, maybe they run around it, right? And they and they stick on their forehand side, like, a lot like what Monty does. And it's super effective. He he gets outside of, of his, 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 his squared up so fast that he, he's there early and he can still hit it well. But then that spreads them and it leaves gaps for you to punch down the middle. And then... If the shaker's pulled way off the court, say you write a good return right in the corner, that baker has so much court to cover at that point that that's one way I would try to approach it if guys are, are really just trying to shove it down my throat and kill me with it. Um, so a good angled return. A nice angled return to the backhand. Because if it's in the middle of the court or on the back right corner, it's in forehand territory and all, and almost everyone at our level can, can hit difficult drives from there. So it has to be in the backhand corner for the left player. And then if they do get off a good third at me, I am totally content to capitulate. And, and as Jesse mentioned, I'm best up at the net. That's where I'm comfortable dinking, counter punching, moving people around, just waiting for you to hit me a pop up. Cause I'm not scared of the speed up as much anymore i mean guys can still get me on it but but i'm not that's it's not like a weakness like i kind of invite that i almost leave balls high for people to speed up at me because i know i can counter them so i'm not trying to pass the baker i'm like get it in the kitchen kill the ball let's go soft 
So as a baker, this is how I defend it. Um, if I'm getting baked on, is exploiting the baker. I'm going to I'm going to put the ball in attackable mindset for that baker, but far enough for him to make a mistake. And here's why. So if they hit they hit the ball into the net on the bake, or if they hit the ball out on the bake, that demoralizes the baker. If you do not if you do not execute a successful shake and bake, your likelihood to try it again is less. And the only way to get the baker to do it less is to demoralize them through failure. And to make them fail is to stretch them out past their comfortability. So if they're taking that 75% of the court and you put it in that 80th percentile and they swing and hit it into the net, their likelihood to try that again is less. So well, they don't I, hit it as well, and they're scrambling, and it's chaos. It's and different. Yeah. It's different. So exploit the baker. That's what yep. my strategy is. Along those same lines. Sorry, Jesse. I see you. I have a thought there, but um, I, I would attack the baker. So I think if you're the guy at the net, um, you can deal with a drop. Like you, you have plenty of time to look at that drop if that third ball hitter decides to hit a drop. So if your main focus is is the drive then you can see that coming and you should be actually attacking their drive and i would say hit it right at the baker intimidate awesome. him screw up his confidence make him not want to do that again mm-hmm. jesse close us out final thought a final question actually i think this is an important one i know this is a long episode but where should the baker aim in a shake and bake do you do you aim at the person in front of you do you aim cross court what do you so I, my quick answer is I don't evaluate where my opponents are. If I'm in that scenario, they disappear to me, and I just aim middle of the court. Just I punch it as hard as I can, as fast as I can. doesn't matter where they are, whether there's a gap or I'm going straight through them. You know, it's like don't punch someone, punch through them. Mm-hmm. I just hit that ball as hard as I can right in the middle of the court. And any deviance, variance, or, or miscalculation I have is that margin of error is so wide that I just have success with it. I'm angular below the waist. If they're going to get it, it's going to pop right back up, and my partner's going to clean it up. Um, a lot of times, if I aim for the shoelaces, you're, you're, that's going to equal good result. So you're you're actually hitting cross-court deliberately? Cross-court, for, forehand, down. Mm-hmm. Yep. Angular. Tim? Yeah. I'm just... Uh... I guess I'm more along the lines of what Ian was saying. Um, Just get some power on that ball because it's probably going to work no matter what happens. But I find that a lot of my shots, I don't know if I just like have a knack for finding the holes over there, but they tend to go for clean winners. So I don't know. And that part ends up just being automatic. You've played hundreds of matches at this point. You, you, You intuitively just can feel where to go. Well, and I think the element of surprise equals winners, right? Shake and bake, the, yeah. the baking component, no matter where you hit it, and the element of surprise is going to be your winner there. Well, yeah. like it's not always a surprise, though. It, mm-hmm. You know, you get used to it. And I, I have had bakers hit to me, and I'm able to return it, just as I've had people Ernie on me, and I'm able to return it. So I do think it's worth thinking about where to put that shot. Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Pickle Bros Podcast. We went long, but this is what we love. We are totally passionate about pickleball. Um, Like the video, share the video, comment. Let us know if you're going to implement this strategy. Go buy my book. Yeah, We'll Um, put a link to the book uh, down below, so please check it out. 
Awesome. Yes, that would be wonderful. I'm um, loving so, it, by the way. Oh, you're reading it? Excellent. Oh, yeah. I cannot I cannot wait to hear your final review. So we love you all. Thank you. Stay safe and stay out of the kitchen. <laughs>